Hello and welcome to Me Head is Wrecked with Tony Kelly. I am, of course, your host, Tony Kelly, and I hope whatever day I find you, you find yourself well. I hope your head is not wrecked, and if it is, hopefully we can do something to change that for you today. And remember, it won't be wrecked forever. It's only a momentary thing. Uh, Yeah, I hope all is well with you, wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening. I have a very interesting episode coming up this week on the podcast I'm not going to mess around, I'm not going to arse around or anything at the start. I just want to give an intro to this lady and get straight into it because as I always say in these intros, podcast is not about me, it's about the guest coming on, it's about the story they have to tell, whatever they've been through and of course the recovery from it which is the most important. This week's guest is a friend of mine from a good few years ago now, she's a fellow comedian, actress, and writer and all those kind of things. Her name's Sarah Ann Massey. I met her a couple of years ago in New York. She's in a comedy duo with her husband, Nick Thomas. Uh, they're called We Are Tomasi, which if you for our um, switched on listeners will have figured out it's their, both of their last names put together. I met Nick and Sarah together at a, at a show. I saw them perform in New York at a place called The Pit, the People's Improv Theatre. A couple of years back now, maybe 2016, I think, so about four years ago, and uh, immediately loved their work and hit it off with them straight away as friends. And I've um, I've kept in touch with them ever since. I've seen them perform a couple of times. We've hung out uh, both in New York and in LA where I also saw them perform. They're absolutely fantastic. But Sarah has uh, has quite the story to tell. It's quite topical at the moment as well. Um, Sarah is one of the uh, the silence breakers that was involved in the, the start of the Me Too movement with the, the whole Harvey Weinstein controversy and all that kind of stuff. Um, Sarah is one of the accusers and one of the people who has spoken out and she is a very, very a great advocate for um, trauma, for sexual abuse, all that kind of um, kind of stuff. Um, it's, you know, this I think will be a very interesting listen for you out there. None of these subjects are, are easy listens, I suppose, and that's not, you know, that's not the point of the podcast either. Um Sarah's got a great story to tell how she got there, how it's how come, how speaking out about the whole thing has actually affected her career for the negative, to be honest with you. Um, she's been blackballed a little bit over the last couple of years. Now that's starting to hopefully lift for her now. She's got some she's got some success and stuff uh, back up and running again. But herself and Nick, as a comedy duo, have some huge successes. Their their YouTube uh, and Facebook videos have been viewed millions of times. I think they have over 15 million views uh, for their work, so they're quite successful comedians as well. But I think Sarah's got a great story, and uh, no matter what you've been through yourself, uh, as I think I bring up in this this interview, uh, trauma is trauma, no matter where it comes from, and we all have to get past it and get through it. So look, without any further ado, I think uh, it's important Sarah tells her story, and uh, we learn a little bit more about what's gone on and what's still going on with that whole controversy. Uh, so yeah, look, without any further ado, as I said, please enjoy the wonderful Sarah Ann Massey. Okay, I'm here with the wonderful Sarah Ann Massey. Sarah, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm good. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. It's a very much a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We met, I want to say maybe four years ago now at this point. That sounds about right. Uh, we met in New York City in the pit. Is mm-hmm. that right? And right. for anyone who doesn't know, this is not an actual pit or or a, <laughs> or a dive. The pit is the People's Improv Theatre in New York City. I saw came to see my friend Jennifer Bloodsworth's um, what are they like a sketch troupe? I guess they're called National Scandal. And you and your husband Nick, who are a comedy duo, uh, were on the same bill. That's right. Yeah. We're a duo called Weir Tomasi. My husband's British. Mm-hmm. And we started about five years ago. So you saw us pretty early on in our journey of sketch comedy. Yeah, well, I, you, I think you guys were on before. Jen. It, was like a, it was like a double billing type thing. And I'd obviously never met you guys before. I'd never seen anything you'd done before. But I remember, and I don't think Jen will mind me saying to me, saying, but I really enjoyed you guys more. I enjoyed <laughs> them. It's just to the... British humour or something like that 
But I remember speaking to you guys in the bar afterwards and being like, you are just something really different. So like maybe you're, maybe give everyone the listeners who haven't maybe seen your videos or anything like that a background on who you guys are, what the act is about and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, my last name is Massey, obviously, and my husband's last name is Thomas. And so we sort of combine them to create the weird Massey thing. And it's just the two of us. We do sketch comedy. So for anyone who's not familiar with sketch comedy, it's all pre-written. It's not improvised. So if you're familiar with like Saturday Night Live or that sort of thing, mm-hmm. that kind of format. But our comedy is very fast paced. Yeah. Like some of our sketches are 10 seconds long. I think our longest one now is maybe three minutes. Mm-hmm. So it all moves pretty quickly. And we focus a lot on sort of like cultural differences between Britain and America, history. Our biggest sketches so far have been about Britain and America as awkward exes uh, sort of interacting. And we also do, you know, we cover a lot of things about like feminism and social issues, but it's not, I I like to think it's not really heavy handed. And I think it appeals to a broad audience, which is nice because I think comedy can sort of break down walls and reach people in ways that sort of preaching at them can't. For sure. And I mean, I've seen you guys live a couple of times now, uh, both in New York and in L.A., and uh, I just love what you guys do. And I remember actually the first time we ever spoke, me kind of saying to you, are you, are you planning on getting these stuff on video because it would work so well? And you had the I remember your first awkward ex was ex when you did was about the the 4th of July and American independence from England. That's right. What was it? It was like as if they were you were America and Nick was England. Yeah, so it was like my birthday party as America and England shows up unexpectedly and it's just that awkward interaction where you see your ex at a party and you kind of don't want to talk to them but you have to and you know it was really fun because I think thinking about the idea of countries being like in a relationship together is something that really seemed to click with people and it was just really like we shot it for no money on a friend's roof with a bunch of really cool people who just wanted to help out and it got two and a half million views in four days. Yeah. And that was great. Like I, we had, we had only moved to LA a few months before that. So we thought that's it. We've made it. You know, yeah. <laughs> a few months prior to that, like funny or die had started featuring some of our videos. So we felt like, you know, we were in and we were going to have this big career now. And you know, that's not really how things work, but it was a really good start to our work as comedians because we had both started out as actors really like doing Shakespeare and I did musical theater and so getting to write our own stuff and be funny and creative in that way was really gratifying because you know as an actor a lot of time is spent waiting around for someone else to hire you so we've now done over a hundred digital comedy shorts and have over like 15 million views and a really dedicated fan base online and it's been so nice and really great to have that constant creative outlet yeah it's amazing and you, you guys do so well and i'm a big fan of your work obviously that's how we became friends in the first place but um how, you mentioned nick is british you're obviously where where in america are you from sarah originally uh i grew up in connecticut i was born yeah. in new jersey so like the new york area yeah the troy state area is that what they, right. what they say mm-hmm. uh so how did you how would you how did you and nick meet we met in brooklyn through right. a mutual friend who's also from the uk and the funny thing is the night i met him all i knew about him was that he wrote math books <laughs> and I was ready to be very bored. But within 30 seconds, we discovered that we were both performers. And so we really clicked on that and got along. Um, yeah, so it was just kind of a happenstance. He happened to be in New York visiting from the UK. And a, a friend in, introduced us to each other. That's great. Now, Nick's a gentleman, really nice guy. I have a lot of time for Nick. He's a lovely, lovely gentleman. Um, so, like, I guess, oh, yeah, also, actually, you have a connection to Ireland as well, don't you? Yeah, I'm half Irish. So my uh, great-grandmother was born in Sligo. And I got to go over and meet all these cousins in Sligo that I'd never known before and see where my great-grandmother grew up in the early 1900s. And it was really amazing. It was that weird thing where I stepped off the airplane in Dublin and I just felt this feeling I'd never felt before. Like I felt so connected to the earth I was standing on. It was really magical. And I saw amazing like site-specific theater when I was in Dublin and, and heard all this great music and ate all this wonderful food. And so now every time I go back to Europe, we try to arrange to fly into Dublin so we can spend a little time in Ireland. That's right, and we really have to try and get you to do some sort of a performance over here as well, yourself and Nick. But I think we we yeah, spoke about that. that. Yeah, we spoke about that before. Um, so look, I suppose the reason you're here is to talk about what's been going on the last couple of years. I suppose at this stage. Yeah. Uh, um, it's very it's the moment. Um, do you want to take maybe the lead from there? Who we're talking about? 
Yeah, so I was one of the first women to come forward publicly about being assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, who, mm. for anyone who doesn't know, I'm sure you've heard the name by now, but he was a huge, huge movie producer in the United States. And there were two big stories that came out in October of 2017, one in the New York Times and one in the New Yorker. And I wasn't in either of those. I actually happened to be in Europe at yeah. the time that those stories broke. And I read them and like everything came into focus for me because in 2008, I was had just moved to New York and just started my own theater company. And I was a nanny as my day job. I love kids and it was better than bartending or working as a waitress. Sure. And yeah. um, But New York is expensive. So I was looking for a second nannying job. And I had spent about a month interviewing with Harvey Weinstein's assistants. Mm -hmm. He needed a nanny for his kids from his first uh, marriage. And it would be part-time in New York and then part-time in Connecticut where I had grown right. up. So after that first month of interviews, I was told I had to go to his house in Connecticut. And that's where he assaulted me at this job interview. Okay, which we'll, we will get to, obviously. Yeah. But like, first of all, even so I studied in New York in America, right, in, in film school. And there was a thing. This is how just for to give people some context. There was he such was such a big producer that there was a thing called like the Weinstein pitch that if you met Harvey Weinstein at a bathroom stall or in the elevator, it's the elevator pitch really, but also the Weinstein pitch. If you met him in an elevator, what is the 30 second pitch you, we would give him? Like that's how big he was in the industry and how powerful he was. So my question I suppose would be, you said you went through the, the months of interviews or whatever with his assistant. Did you know it was for him? Yeah, I did. So I was working with an agency, uh, a nanning agency, not mm. an acting agency. And, they sort of worked with the most powerful, rich clients in New York. So, you know, a lot of like hedge fund people and whatever. And they said, we have this client who I think would be really good for you because you have a background in what they do. And so he's a movie producer. His name is Harvey Weinstein. Would he be willing to interview? I said, yeah, of course. Um, I know who he is. That's fine. And the thing that was interesting is very early on in the process, like I had a conversation with the assistants about, how it was important to me that they knew that I was really only interested in being a nanny. Like I had no desire to try and like leverage this for my acting career. And, yeah. you know, it was just important for me. And, and they had brought that up too, that, you know, Oh, is it a problem that you work in the same industry? Mm -hmm. And so for me, there was always a clear separation. And then funnily enough, they got to the point of going, actually, you know, Harvey and, and, and we think it's a really good fit because you understand the industry and, right. you know, you'll understand the people he's going to have around and, and, you know, keeping things private and, 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 you know, and at the time I thought, well, okay, sure. Maybe he'll have parties and maybe some famous actor will drink a bit too much and they don't want someone who's going to go talking to the press about it. Of course. Uh, later on, it became clear that they meant something very different. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. And again, we will get to that as well. So, like, you're 18 years old. You're in New York. You've just started your own theater company. You have the opportunity now to go and meet Harvey Weinstein for the job interview. But, like, just to track back, like, this story was so huge, bro. Right? This was massive in 2017 when it broke. And I remember you and Nick were in... Europe, what well, you were in Europe, aren't you? When this, yeah, just to correct one thing, I wasn't 18, and I'm also not going to say how old I was because okay. I am still an actor, and our our industry is very, uh, yes, um, yes, yes, okay, age focused, okay, but yeah, that's fine, especially for, especially, especially for females as well, yeah. so that's yeah, uh, okay, that's fine. But my point was that I remember, I remember you guys were in Europe because I think we were talking about maybe trying to visit or something like that. Yeah, we were and I, and, together. And I was saying to you guys that I'd be in New York and in LA later on that year that, look, if we didn't get to do it in Europe, we'd do it in New York or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I remember scrolling through Facebook one night and Variety, like the trade publication for movie business, came up on my timeline and your face was on it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and like, Obviously, look, I'm not expecting this. You're my friend, someone I know personally. And and I see you come up. And I thought it was one of those gag things where you can put your your uh, head, you know? And it was yeah. like Sarah and Massey comes forward as Weinstein accuser. And I, it was like as if, as if, like not a double take, but like four or five takes going, what? What? And it, that's, that's where it all came from me. So... I guess we'll get to what it was like when, when it all broke for you, but maybe tell us the backstory of when you finally go to meet this, this I suppose, human being. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> human being, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I went to, I took the train to my 
parents' house in Connecticut and picked up my old car that was still there and drove to his house. He he only lived about maybe 20 minutes away from where I grew up. And everyone who lived there knew what town he lived in. And, sure. you know, he was sort of a local fixture. I, I, my mom had even seen him in a bookstore. Mm-hmm. I kind of forget about this sometimes, a few mm-hmm. years ahead of when this happened to me. And I remember her telling me that he was like, screaming like bellowing his his wife's name at the time because he wanted to leave and so this was the thing going into it the only thing I really knew about him besides all the films he had produced and how powerful and famous he was was that he had a reputation of being kind of difficult like sure. maybe a bit of a bully but I also knew from my previous experience that you know sometimes people are one way in their business lives and very different at home so I was going to be working with the kids and a mem- you know a member of the household staff and and they tend to treat you much more nicely than they do the people they work with in their office so I wasn't too worried about that I thought I'm sure he'll be fine so I got there and you know it's a mansion and it's behind a gate and so you buzz in at the gate and you drive through and the gate locks behind you and you park your car And I walked up to the door and I knocked on the door, rang the doorbell, whatever it is. And he answered and um, he was wearing, the first thing I noticed was he was wearing like a dirty undershirt. And then I sort of took all of him in and he was wearing boxers. So he was just in his underwear opening the door for this interview. And, you know, your your initial thought isn't, oh, this man's an abuser and he's going to assault me. You think, well, this is embarrassing and awkward. He must have forgotten I was coming. You know, I'm sure he'll excuse himself, get changed, and we'll move on with the interview. Yeah, of course. And he asked, you know, he let me in the house and then just didn't. Like, he walked me into the room where we were doing the interview and just sat across from me in his underwear. And at that point, you know, I'm, I'm already locked behind a gate and a huge front door. Mm -hmm. And I'm ostensibly alone in this man's house and I'm already you know my brain's already doing that thing of just like kind of shutting down like you can't quite process what's happening it's that trauma response which I didn't have the language for that at the time but I now understand it much better and even talking about it right now like I'm feeling like the cortisol starting to course through my body and I'm getting a little shaky and so I was just sitting there trying to be professional you know just keeping eye contact and and sitting as far away as I could and hoping it would be over quickly and it would be fine. And also thinking maybe he's just like quirky, you know, maybe this is just, this is weird, but I'm sure I'll be fine. Like, I'm sure nothing bad is going to happen. You know, you tell yourself that in your head while you're in this situation. And it started out with him just sort of asking me for my resume and asking me kind of normal interview questions. And then at some point, uh, two of his kids came in to the room and I felt relieved because I thought, okay, all right, we're not alone. His kids are here. That's a normal part of the nannying interview. I'll get to meet them and, and see what the dynamic is like. And the second they got into the room, he changed in front of my eyes. It was like Jekyll and Hyde. He became livid, like so angry, screaming at his children to leave the room, not to come back in as long as I was there, to leave us in private. And that's when I started getting really scared. So the man wanted to conduct an interview with you Mm -hmm. and he hasn't changed his clothes from what he answered the door in. Well, I think, yeah, I think the thing is now, knowing what I know now after reading all these stories from other women and and now knowing a lot of these women, this is kind of his M.O., you know, he would answer the door in his bathrobe or he would answer the door with no clothes on or he would get you inside and then suddenly be naked. And so this was um, a setup. You know, when I I say now having clarity and context and knowing these other women's stories, like even the meetings with his assistants, they were essentially like honeypots. I was being trapped and I was being groomed for this whole experience. So, you know, as the interview went on, like he made, he started talking about my acting career, which made me uncomfortable because that was already decided that that wasn't going to be something we talked about. Yeah, for sure. And so that felt like crossing a line. And then he asked me if I would ever flirt with his friends or use sex to get ahead in my career. Wow. And I was just like adamantly, absolutely not. I find that despicable. I would never do something like that, no matter what industry I was in. Mm-hmm. And then I, I don't know, like eventually it felt like the interview was wrapping up and he stood up and 
I thought, okay, good, we're going to leave now and I'm going to get out of here. And he walked towards me and I thought he was going to shake my hand, but he grabbed me and he just pulled me in and pressed me up against his body. And again, remember, like he's only wearing underwear and I'm frozen. I I didn't know. I I didn't want to push him off because I didn't want to make him angry. I'd already seen that rage on display is much bigger than I am, you know, more powerful than I am. I certainly wasn't going to hug him back, but I just kind of stood there like a limp fish. And he just kept pressing up against me and pulling me in. And he leaned in and whispered into my ear that he loved me. What? Yeah, it was so, I mean, everything about it was so surreal, but it just, it was bizarre. And then he sort of let me go and I left the house. And I, what's so interesting to me is I remember so clearly driving to his house. Like I remember, I know the exit I took and everything, but there's like, it's getting back to my parents' house is a complete blur. I was just in shock and I felt uncomfortable. I felt icky. I felt scared. I felt all these really confusing emotions. And luckily when I got back to my parents' house, my mom was there. So I told her right away what happened. And as I was telling her, I watched her face fall. Like, you know, because she came in, I hopeful, happy. Oh, you had a big interview. Yeah. And she she validated for me at the time that, like, what happened to me was not okay. And, you know, I wasn't crazy to feel like something bad had happened to me. Good. Uh, which was really, I think, really important. But yeah. I I didn't know what to do. Like, people have since asked me, well, why didn't you go to the police? First of all, just stop asking survivors of sexual violence, why they didn't go to the police, why they didn't report, why they didn't tell anybody. The the answer is contained within your question. I mean, people don't believe us. They blame us for what's happened to us. Anybody who has been, Harvey Weinstein is on trial right now in New York, a criminal yeah. trial, and anyone who's been following the case, like all his defense attorneys have done, they really don't have anything. So all they do is try to attack the women who have taken the witness stand, the victims, you know, calling it to question their credibility and purity testing them and asking them about their sexual experience. It's like, it's, it's just really disturbing. So I didn't even, I didn't even know I could go to the police. You know, there's been this narrative for a long time that like sexual violence is rape. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't raped, oh, well, you know, that's it. And even women who are raped and men who are raped and children who are raped, like they don't get justice most of the time from the criminal justice system. So I did not go to the police. I did not know I could report this. I didn't tell my agency because I thought if I made trouble if I complained then they wouldn't send me out on more interviews and I wouldn't get any work and I you know basically my parents were the only people who knew for a very long time and um, the really sad thing about it is I was just starting out in my career like I put in a lot of work to be really well trained by that point and I had done some really cool professional theater like there's this theater in uh, the Berkshires called the Williamstown Theater Festival and it's very prestigious and I did it two summers in a row and it was great. And I was feeling like, okay, I've now kind of started digging in a little bit into theater and making a little bit of a name for myself. I can try breaking into film and TV. I live in New York and start looking for agents. And then I just didn't, I was so afraid that this was going to happen to me again, or that I would be in a room alone with Harvey again for an audition or I'd get attached to a project that he was producing or that some other man in some other audition room would do this to me because you think if if you're this vulnerable when you go to interview to be a nanny yeah and it's all been sorted through an agency and everything like as an actor you're so vulnerable and people might not know that but there's you know it's an industry where it has been standard practice to meet in hotel rooms or even when you go on audition oftentimes it's you and one other person alone in a room with a closed door and sometimes people try to get you to take your shirt off and sometimes people make flirtatious comments or just they're just talking about your body from a professional standpoint. And it's there are all these really blurry lines. And I just couldn't put myself in that position again. So I lost years of my career because of this. Well, that's something I wanted to wanted to talk to you about was how it affected you going. That's like you've 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 already answered the question. But I, I the very first thing I thought of was going on auditions, being with it a male casting director or a, a director where you're one-on-one in a room. So that is something that affected you. Like, so it's a trauma. Yeah. Oh, it's a huge trauma. And I didn't know fully at the time that I was carrying this, you know, it was, it was complicated too, because two months prior to Harvey assaulting me at this job interview, I was raped by an acquaintance. 
Oh my so, gosh. So, yeah. And I was also drugged twice while living in New York, uh, you know, uh, roofied, I had my drink roofied. And so look, as, as a woman, your life is kind of this series of harassments and assaults for, for most of us from like childhood on through and look, I, Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. Like I, I think I was like up until very recently, I didn't quite understand what what went on like even down to women being on twitter facebook getting unsolicited messages constantly from males i i i'm i'm i'll openly admit how ignorant i was towards all this um so i i'm in yeah i i'm well first of all i'm shocked because i didn't know that other information you're going to tell me but i'm also not shocked to the point that i know so many pretty much any of my female friends will tell me oh yeah this was dropped in my drink one night or i was drugged and luckily my friends brought me home and (sighs) yeah Yeah, it's a lot and the thing is I, i mean i think you know the me too movement has been this really important thing and Anytime there's there's progress made, there are going to be people who push back. And there are people pushing back going, well, but what if my son is falsely accused? And all of this comes from fear because the statistics show that that's really not something to be worried about. And something like conservative estimates say maybe as much as 8% of uh, reports are false. It's really more like 2%. Um, but between 2 and 8%, which is in line with every other crime that's reported. So it's the same kind of level of false reporting that you get. And it always follows a very clear pattern. Um, it's pretty easy to suss out. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, you have things like Emmett Till, who was a young black man who was killed because he was falsely accused of assaulting white women. This was in the South in the past wow. or, or the Central Park Five. It often happens to... Uh, younger black men who are not in positions of power. So like there, there are patterns, right? But the truth is it's more likely that a man will be raped than be accused of rape. I think it's something like one in six men are sexually assaulted. So this isn't only a female problem. I think women face different challenges where it's just this constant sort of stream of objectification. But when it comes to sexual violence, like all communities are impacted. Well, I mean, look, we know that here in Ireland, you know, from the Catholic Church stuff. And I mean, even Terry Crews, people know who Terry Crews is. Just listen to him on Mark Maron's podcast very, very recently, up to two weeks ago. He was talking about his part in the Me Too movement. So it isn't it isn't a big man hating feminist, ultra, you know, third wave feminist, anti-male. There's men who are part of the Me Too movement as well. Yeah. And, you know, I am a feminist. I, and to me, sure. being a feminist just means that we want equality for men and women. You know, we just want things to be fair and, and people, all people to be treated, you know, with respect. Sure. Abs- absolutely. You're right. It, it has nothing to do with hating men. The, the truth of the matter is whether you're a woman or a man or a child who is assaulted, most of the people perpetuating or perpetrating that crime are male. So that's where it comes into play, right? It's like people think we're attacking men because we're accusing all these men, accusing these men because they're the ones who did it. So it's, it's a problem with society. You know, we're, we're taught from such a young age that women are these sexual objects for men to win and men have power and to have power means to sexually dominate women. And it's like, it's, it's bad for everybody. It's bad for men too. And so I think we kind of like need to address that as a society because it does cause us trauma. It's this, trauma begets trauma begets trauma and the cycle just keeps going yeah i think that's something i struggled with at the start because again ignorance is bliss era you know and until i'm seeing a lot of it firsthand through different females who i'm friends with or otherwise i honestly was like you know men and you automatically go i'm a man that's not me it can't be but then you see you see the pattern of these men who do this and it's about I guess the whole thing for me, from what I understand about it, is it's about holding the people responsible for their actions about what they've done, really. That's right. And I think if we don't, then it just continues. So I think that's why the Harvey Weinstein situation has been really important. The reason I decided to share my story was because after almost a decade of being terrified, that was the thing, too. I I couldn't talk about it because I thought it would get back to him and then my life and my career would be destroyed. Sure. I was just convinced And, you know, 
now that I know that's true, I was not being paranoid. Like he literally did that. He blacklisted women like Ashley Judd and Mira Sorvino were being considered for roles in Lord of the Rings, which his company had something to do with producing. And he told Peter Jackson, no, do not hire them. They're ter- they're trouble. And he had assaulted them. Um, and you see this happening time. He hired spies to like get to women and manipulate them. People pretending to be their friends and journalists. And they were really working for Harvey. Like he really was out to destroy people. And, but then he was fired. Like when these stories broke, he was held accountable. And so I thought I can tell my story. People are believing these women. There's enough of us that we'll be safe. Well, that's what I wanted to get to is obviously, look, you're, a part of I suppose what are called the silence breakers um with some of the the females that you that you mentioned there Rose McGowan I know is mm-hmm. is a part of that as well She's so a good friend. Uh, which is wonderful but when I suppose how do you go from hearing the news break when you're in Europe to you telling your story how do you all get together is to someone make contact with you tell us maybe a little bit about that yeah so it was as you said, you, you saw the Variety article on Facebook, but a couple mm-hmm. of days before that, I actually just like typed up a very brief account of what had happened to me and shared it with my friends on Facebook. I thought, okay, finally I can be free of this. And someone I know saw it and said, you know, would you be willing to talk to the press? And I thought, I, I'm not sure. I really don't know. But if someone wants to talk to me, I'll, I'll talk to them and see how I feel. So it was the day I was in the UK. I was staying at my in-law's house and it was the day before I was supposed to start filming a short film that I had written. And I got a call from Variety and they talked to me for a bit and I said, okay, yeah, let's do this. I'll share my story. So I did that. I ended up doing like live radio interviews with the BBC. It was a real whirlwind. And again, I'm, I'm filming this movie, which has been my dream. I wrote it for me and my friend, Toby Sebastian, who is a British actor who was on Game of Thrones. His sister is actually Florence Pugh, who just right. was nominated for an Oscar. And um, thank God I had that film. It's called Tristan and Kelly, and it's now in festivals and like winning awards. But thank God I had that because my brain was just like not able to process what was happening. I was so far away from the news, like literally physically so far away. But my phone was just exploding with emails and phone calls. And I was totally re-traumatized this stuff that I had buried down for almost a decade was all coming back up to the surface. And I had this amazing crew of mostly men who really understood what I was going through and like took care of me. I had one scene where I had to walk off camera into this dark alleyway. And my first AD said, look, I'm going to go there and I'm going to stand there so that when you walk in there, you're not walking in alone and you feel safe. And so I was really taken care of, which was so important and, and really helped me in that in those first couple of days. But then I, I got back to L.A. and I had had an email from this woman named Sharon Waxman, who runs a, an entertainment publication online called The Wrap. And she was hosting this Power Women's Breakfast in L.A. And this is a couple of weeks after my story came out. And uh, she had invited a bunch of the women who had come forward. So at that breakfast, that was the first time I ever met any of these other women. And um, we sort of talked very briefly and I felt weird and confused and like I'm now part of this strange club that none of us ever wanted to be in. And then a, a couple of weeks later, the Hollywood Reporter had reached out to do a photo shoot and interview with a bunch of us. And that's kind of when we really started talking to each other and connecting. And someone started building an email list and a Twitter list. And so we all sort of started following each other on Twitter. And we kind of had this email support group. And, you know, we go, oh, I got a press request from this person. Are they, you know, is that a real outlet or should we talk to them or whatever. And so that's been going on for two years now. And the list has grown. And I just met a bunch of women in New York who I hadn't met before. Rose McGowan is one of them. And it's some of these people are my best friends. Like Catherine Kendall is an actress in LA who I met very early on. And like, she's one of my best friends in LA now. So it's a strange club of people. We're not all best friends. We don't all have to like hang out all the time, but we all really have each other's backs and support each other. And understand what this is like and all of us process things differently you know some people get quiet and some people want to talk a lot and some people feel angry and some people feel sad and some people want to make jokes about it but it's it's just good to know that we're not alone 
Yeah, and I mean, like a lot of the the podcast for me is about the recovery as much as the mm. um, as much as the story that got us out of trauma, I suppose. Like that. So, what about your own recovery? How, like, when this all came to the forefront, what did you do? Well, I don't think I was prepared at all for what it was going to be like. I thought at first it was going to be okay. Like the first two months, everybody was so supportive and the press was really behind us and public sentiment was really behind us. And it felt like my, you know, my professional reps were behind us and everything. And then about two months in, I started getting told that I needed to watch my back. I need to stop talking. I was being blacklisted. Casting directors weren't going to call me in. I was ruining my career. And it was kind of like, okay, you've told your story now. Enough is enough. Stop talking about it. Right. And that's just not me. You know, I, even before I ever told my own story, I've always been sort of advocating and agitating for change when it comes to issues of sexual violence. And it's something that's really important to me. And so I've done a lot of press. And I've been, like recently I went on court TV a bunch around the trial because I happen to be on the East Coast. And I pushed back. There was a lot of like victim blaming going on in the lines of questioning around the trial and in even how like the commentators were speaking about it. And I think I have a good reputation for being able to clearly explain these things in a way that people can process. So I want to do that. I want to use the platform that I have to try to make things better, you know? So my career basically dried up. I it went a year and eight months without an audition. Um, which without, is, even, without even without an audition, audition. not yeah, booking not a job, work, just with no auditions. And the thing, like, I think it's important for people to know, I was not famous before any of this, right? Like, there are some women who were very successful and had their careers really diminished and destroyed by him, either right after it happened or in the years subsequent or once they started speaking up. But even women who had had their careers pulled back, who were successful, are facing more challenges now that they've come forward publicly. So. This isn't just happening to me. This is kind of happening to all the silence breakers. And what we really are is whistleblowers, right? And like whistleblower retaliation is something we're all pretty familiar with. So it's well, not ev- surprising. Exactly. Everyone here in Ireland will be familiar with that because we had a, 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 a guard. The guardy here is the police force in Ireland. We had a Garda who was a whistleblower here about a lot of stuff that went on and they tried to blacken his name. So anyone out there who is remotely familiar with that very famous story will know exactly what Sarah's talking about. But you've said something very interesting there. I mean, you, we mentioned even Mina Servino there earlier on. I mean, she, she won an Oscar, didn't she? Oh, yeah. Mira Servino won an Oscar. And her, her work dried up. So, like, mm-hmm. for, for that to affect her like that, what you're saying is very, very important. You, on the way up in your career, like, you, you, you and Nick were making these videos. They were doing so well, funny. Your diet were covering it, millions of views. And you went a year and eight months without so much as an audition. That's not a coincidence. No, not at all. I mean, I've never in my life gone that long without audition. And I wasn't – it's not like – I had the best agent in town and I was auditioning several times every day, but I was auditioning, you know, frequently, regularly. And it just disappeared completely. And I literally a few weeks ago had my first audition and it was for a two line role on a sitcom. And, you know, I didn't end up booking it. That's fine. That goes along with, you know, the, the job. Yeah. It was a great audition and they really liked me and I got good feedback from my manager, but it was an all female team. And my last audition before it dried up was for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is also a very heavily female team. And I guess I don't think that's a coincidence either. I I don't believe that everyone in our industry will refuse to work with all of us for the rest of our lives. I don't believe that. But I do think there are people who are afraid. They don't want people who are quote unquote troublemakers or they're still friends with Harvey or they have their own skeletons in their closet. And I don't think a lot of people understand that this is happening. I wrote an op-ed last month for The Wrap talking about this because so many people don't even know. Like, they don't realize that we're being blacklisted. They don't realize that our careers are suffering. And so I'm just hoping people will hear that and care and want to do something about it. I think that's actually one of the most important parts of the story, Sarah, to be honest. To be very easy to look at this from a mile away with a pair of binoculars and going, oh, this girl has a, f- a fledgling career and then all of a sudden gets all this publicity but that that's you know it's, no. it's to put that out there i think yeah you know that like it's certainly like they say oh, all publicity is good publicity that's not necessarily not necessary. no it's been devastating really for most of us and look we don't have to do the press right we don't have to do it and plenty no. of people told their stories and never spoke to the press again 
And I respect that entirely. And plenty of people didn't tell their stories. And I also respect that. Not everybody feels safe to. But for me, I thought, look, the press is constantly going to try and talk to me about this. And most of the time, they just want to hear the nitty gritty details again and the salacious story. But if I have the opportunity to talk to the press, I'm going to talk to them about what's important. So I'm going to advocate for changes like legislative change and societal change and really talk about the humanity at the center of this. I think because it's such a big story and because it's about Hollywood and these famous people, it's easy to forget that these are real human lives. And I was, I was just a nanny and a young actor and I'm just trying to be a working actor now. And like the impact, not just on my career, the other thing we haven't talked about is my physical health has been so greatly deteriorating. And uh, probably for about the past 10, maybe 12 years, I've started having health problems. Right. And some of them are genetic, like I have a connective tissue disorder and that's that. But a lot of it, a lot of them are things that doctors don't even really fully understand yet, but they do know that one of the triggers for a lot of them is trauma. Yep. So like I have fibromyalgia and I have dysautonomia, which is basically like when your autonomic nervous system doesn't function properly. So what regulates heartbeat and breathing and, and your digestion, all that stuff. And we now know that that's heavily linked to trauma because when you're, when you're in a traumatic situation, like cortisol starts pumping out and you go into fight or flight and you can get locked in hyper arousal is what they cause it. So my doctor told me a couple of years ago, you know, she tested my cortisol levels and she said, you know, it's kind of like your brain is telling your body that you're being chased by a bear 12 hours a day. There you go. And it made complete sense. I'm, I'm so like, I'm a very calm person, mm -hmm. but if you walk into the room unexpectedly, I will jump. I'll be terrified. Yeah. Like I'm so, I'm, I have really fast responses. Like I'm very quick, but I think that's because I'm, I'm on hyper alert all the time. Yeah. And then after after you've lived with that for long enough, some people can can get stuck in like hypo arousal, and that's more on the depressive side of things, right? Like your digestion slows down and you feel depressed rather than anxious, and you can cycle between the two of them. For me, mine tends to be on the more like anxious side of things. So like you know, I have I have this thing called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which means hmm. when I stand up sometimes, my heart rate goes from 65 to 125, and I almost pass out. Yeah. And that didn't start happening until two years ago. No, well, something I, I'm 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 after starting a new kind of a thing at the moment. I'm doing uh, acupuncture for my anxiety, and it's yeah. a very Eastern kind of based thing. And one of the things I've learned, even only just in the last week, is that we store a lot of trauma in the body. So if you've gone through a depressive episode or something that's traumatic, okay. you're storing it, whether it's in your posture, in your spine, in your shoulders, your stomach, and what happens in the brain gets stored in the body, and it sounds to me like a lot of your health problems, which your doctors can't explain, are from stored trauma. So do you do anything therapy-wise or anything like that to help with that, Sarah? Yeah. So for me, I mean, I literally just saw my doctor yesterday and I was going over some of these things and she just looked at me and she said, Sarah, you've just been under so much stress for so long and it, it's always something new. And this situation with Harvey and this trial and it's, you're not going to be able to get better as long as you're having this chronic stress. You have to find ways to deal with it. And, you know, so for me, I I have always stored trauma in the body. Like I've known that my whole life. So whether it's a car accident or a divorce or a sexual assault or if you're a refugee or you've lived through a natural disaster, like those are all traumas, right? And so I've really focused on the physical healing. And so I do like uh, the thing I started this past year, which has been really great, is I do um, lymphatic massage followed by uh, infrared sweating. So I like for me, I say I get wrapped up in a sweat burrito. Like I literally lay on this bed and they wrap me in this thing that emits infrared waves and you get really sweaty and it feels great. You come out feeling really calm and you have energy and like some of the physical pain dissipates. So that's been great. Uh, I've done medical massage. I've done acupuncture, but I haven't had the, I don't know. I, I haven't focused on the mental health side of things as much as the physical health. And I was in therapy for a short period of time several years ago um, but it was kind of, it was, it was like my husband was going through something. So he was going and we were going as a couple and it was really focused on his stuff. And to be honest at the time, I wouldn't have talked about this 
yeah. in therapy either. She was a town over from where Harvey lived. I was living in Connecticut at the time. Mm-hmm. I was still terrified to tell anybody what had happened to me. So I kept a lot of this bottled up. And so the past two years have been really hard on me. And I think I'm at the point now where what, I, what I've been advised to try is something called neurofeedback, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. But oh. biofeedback is something that's done a lot of the time when you're recovering from like an injury or trying to retrain muscles. And it's basically like these little sensors and they get hooked up to your muscles and they tell the computer like the level of tension that they're at. And you can okay. see it. And so you can see how tense your muscles are and you can tell your body to relax them and you can like see the, the numbers going down and you can learn how to do that. And neurofeedback is kind of the same, but for the brain. So you wear this little cap, it has these little sensors and it, it maps your brain. And then from what I understand, because I haven't done it yet, there's basically like a video game that okay. you watch and it, tra- it, it, it trains, it retrains the neural pathways in your brain wow. by watching this screen. And I think what's, it's, it's supposedly been very helpful for people who suffer with trauma. So I have, you know, I have CPTSD, so complex PTSD, and it's been really helpful for people with PTSD. So I think that's my first course of action. And what's kind of appealing about it is you don't even really have to talk about your trauma in those sessions. It's really just retraining your brain. And I think if I can get my brain, my neurobiology to stop sending out those be afraid signals. I think yep. I'll be able to process it with someone more. I'll be able to talk about it or maybe try EMDR, which is another really cool therapy it has to do with eye movement and the yep. eye movement retrains your neural pathways in your brain. Like there's all these amazing modalities now for mental health. And I just did that this week for the first did time. You? I did. Amazing. Really? It's amazing. Honestly, like, but that's, that's kind of what the, the thing with the, with this podcast as well is I think we're all, we're all telling our stories. We're all coming from places of trauma, they're all different traumas, but the ends are always the same. The behaviors are always the same. We're acting on learned behavior. We're acting on fear. And it's mm-hmm. no matter what the trauma is, it turns to fear. And then fear turns either to anger or to resentment or to guard, putting the guard up, not letting people in. And it's the recovery from that trauma and getting rid of those negatives is the same no matter what trauma we've been through, I'm learning. It's so true. And I feel like, you know, the Jedi really had it right. Yeah. Fear, Lynn's. <laughs> it's true, yeah. but it's so true. And the thing that was really empowering for me, there's this woman named Louise Godbold, who is a Harvey survivor and who runs a nonprofit called Echo Training. And all they do is educate on trauma. So I met her through this process and I've done some of her trainings and learning that what was going on in my body was not wrong or crazy, or my fault. It was literally just my brain trying to help me survive. Like it's, it's a survival tactic. It's so deeply ingrained in our brains. And there are all different responses in the moment too. Like we all know about fight or flight, but there's also freeze and fawn. So what I did, I froze, I froze up and that's a survival tactic and fawning. You know, when you hear people being like, well, why did she send him a friendly email the next day? Or why did she keep going on dates with him or why did she stay with her abusive husband that that fawn response that keeping your abuser happy that's a survival tactic too it also helps it helps the person who lost all their power to regain some power and some normalcy to go oh that was an aberration that didn't really happen let's just go back to how things were so it's really complicated our brains are really complicated very important to note that one though the fawn that is yeah. very, very important for anyone yeah. listening, male or female, going through emotional or physical abuse. That is something that is done. It we, is. I, yeah, I can, yeah, I can definitely identify with that. And I can definitely, I know there'll be a lot of people that can. So that's a very important note. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of people beat themselves up for that. And they should know that it's a really normal response. Yeah. And, you know, we're just trying to do our best. We're just trying to get through And it was never our fault in the first place. You know, we aren't the ones who, you know, people have said like, oh, why did he go into the hotel room or why did he go into the house? And it's like, that's where the meeting was. You know, that's just just how it happened. And and even if it wasn't like, even if you were on a date and you were drinking and you were kissing and then you decide you're, you're not happy with the way things are going, it's not your fault. It's the person who pushes past that line. It's the person who takes advantage of you and, and denies your autonomy and your consent, that's that's the person that we need to be looking at. And I, I just hope that anybody listening who's been through something like this or anybody listening who might be confused about the behaviors of 
survivors of sexual violence, either during the assault or in the aftermath, will understand a little bit more and have a little more empathy for it. That's it. Well, look, Sarah, the story is amazing. Your strength is amazing and the fact that you keep fighting. It's it's really wonderful to have you here. Um, to end it on a more positive note, <laughs> yeah. uh, tell us about where we can all see yourself and Nick's work because it's something everyone should check out, I think. Thank you. Yeah, so we're called We Are Tomasi. So we are T-H-O-M-A-S-S-E. Mm-hmm. Facebook is where we have our biggest following and we post a new video on there every other week. We're also on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and then for me, my project right now that I'm really proud of is Tristan and Kelly. Yeah. That's the short film that stars me and Toby Sebastian. And that's TristanandKelly.com. We're doing festivals. Uh, we're actually in a festival in Scotland on February 22nd. I'm not sure when know. this will air, but I think, I think it'll air before that. But it's been really great. And I wrote a feature version of it so i'm Wonderful. trying to work on that now and yeah just i heard there's an i heard there's an irish character in that is that oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah male yeah <laughs> male irish yeah about your age yeah um yeah i've just been writing a lot because right. things have dried up and even our filming like nick and, and me we haven't been doing as much just because this has taken so much focus sure, sure, course, so yeah. writing's been really great and we're really recommitted to keep putting out material and keep just hopefully helping to make people laugh and and bring a little joy to the world you know, but you know, follow me on Instagram, follow me on Twitter. I'm always talking about both sort of the industry and my advocacy. And sometimes I say funny things too. So hopefully there'll be something for everyone. Sarah, it's great to have you here. It's great to catch up and hopefully I'll see you soon. Thanks, Tony. It's great Thanks, to talk Sarah. to you. Thank you. So there we have it, another episode in the books. Great to talk to Sarah, great to catch up with friends that I haven't spoken to for a long time on the podcast. Um, great for them to come on and tell their stories. I'm very grateful that they trust me enough to tell uh, such intimate and, um, I suppose, um, vulnerable stories. It's, uh, it's, it's an honour for me, I suppose, to, to facilitate people to be able to do that. I hope everyone is getting something from it. If you're enjoying what I'm doing with the podcast, please give me a five-star review if you feel like I deserve it on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. Subscribe, please. Uh, the more views, the more listens, the more eyes are on it, the better. So if you're enjoying it, please go ahead and do that. And I'll be back again in two weeks' time with more episodes this is me, Head is Wrecked with Tony Kelly. See you soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.